If the widely touted fifth-generation communications network is to fulfill its promise, it needs a better antenna. Now researchers at the Los Alamos National Laboratory have developed an antenna they call a game-changer for 5G and for military communications. Here to tell us about it, John Singleton. He's an electrical engineer and fellow at Los Alamos. Mr. Singleton, good to have you on. Nice to be with you. Thank you for having me. This is called a light slinger, and it sounds almost like a Frisbee for things you can see. What problem are you trying to solve here? Let's start there. What we're trying to solve is um, making uh, versatile antennas that have advantages over the conventional type of antenna that have been used for the past hundred odd years to transmit uh, radio waves. So the idea is to make them direct beams of radio waves better, to make them, say, more conformable in shape so that they could go on the outside of vehicles, to make them adaptable to all sorts of different situations in a way that conventional antennas can't be. Sounds like they could act as if an antenna that could move but be in a fixed position. Is that a good way to describe it? Yes, you can alter the way in which the antenna directs its radiation electronically very easily. You can make these new types of antennas, these light slingers, focus radiation in a way that conventional antennas cannot. Yeah, I think of an antenna as a fixed thing that is activated by induction and then sends out the waves in a single direction. And if they widen, then the wider they go, the more people can pick it up and induce the same current in their own antenna. That's the sort of thing. So conventional antennas work using electrons. Um, Electrons carry electrical current along metal components. And if you make the electrons current wiggle around or oscillate on those metal components, you can generate a, a radio wave. So what we've done is instead of using a current of electrons, we use a thing called a polarization current. The interesting thing about a polarization current is it can be made to travel faster than the speed of light. This means that we can emulate the sort of phenomena you see with sound when you have things like sonic booms and super booms and uh, focusing of ultrasonic radiation and things like that from supersonic particles. A little bit of explanation about what a polarization current is. A polarization current is just positive and negative charges in in a solid being displaced in opposite directions. You might think, well, how can I make that travel faster than the speed of light? It's not actually the positive and negative charges that are traveling faster than the speed of light, it's their displacements. Think about a stadium wave. You have a load of people sitting in a soccer stadium and they stand up and then sit down. And if they do it in a carefully synchronized pattern, they can make this wave go around the soccer stadium very fast. They themselves don't move very much. They just move slowly and they just stand up and sit down. But the disturbance that they've created moves very, very fast indeed. So using this, we can make a current of these things. We can make it travel faster than the speed of light. We can make it accelerate. We can do all the things that um, people who discovered the sonic boom did in acoustics, but we can do them with, with radio waves now. Right. So does this require some exotic material capable of that property? No. The, the interesting thing about these antennas is that they're made out of very routine, locally available materials. This is another thing that we were searching for. You've probably not taken apart one of those base station antennas that you see for cell phones. They look like sort of vertical loudspeakers. Inside them, There's about 300 separate components that are sourced from all over the world, assembled in the Far East by hand and stuck together. So there are all sorts of potential supply chain issues with conventional antennas. Here we use, for the same sort of antenna, we can make it from just five components. And those components are all 
materials available locally, such as alumina. That's a good insulator. It's used in all sorts of things. G10, which is a composite material, and then evaporating down copper contacts and strips on these things. So we demonstrated that any small shop that can do CNC fabrication can do the sort of evaporation you do to make circuit boards, can make these things and can make them in just five components. Uh, One of the things that is holding up new technologies is supply chain issues. So the good thing about light sling is, is you can make them out of locally sourced components in a local shop. I mean, let's say you're, you're, you're at sea, you could have a CNC shop in your in your Navy ship, and you can make a new antenna if the other one got, got trashed in some way. It's a way of also simplifying antenna construction. We're speaking with John Singleton. He's an electrical engineer and fellow at the Los Alamos National Laboratory. And what are some of the practical applications of the light slinger? You could use them to replace conventional antennas, say, like the base station antennas we, we talked about. Because of the way they're constructed, you can make conventional antennas so that they're very directed, very focused. But what that does is it also makes them quite narrow band. That means they can't broadcast a wide range of frequencies. Because our antennas, rather than being made up of all of these little components that broadcast from sort of points within the conventional antenna, they're a continuous stream of polarization current going through a block of material. They don't have those issues. So you could probably replace a a sort of family of base station antennas, each for a different frequency band, with a single one of these. It could be directional still, but it could work at several different frequencies at the same time. So that's a kind of economy thing. They're also very suitable for 5G local network applications that have been proposed, where you have a little array, and rather than sort of broadcasting all of the time to the local houses, it squirts information successively into adjacent houses. And a little array made out of these light singers will be very suitable for that sort of application. What about the power requirements? Do they take a million volts to be able to do this? or No, no. They're very similar sort of efficiency to a conventional antenna, low powers. We've done tests out to 76 kilometers, about 50 miles, just using half a volt applied to our light slinger antenna. So you could make them very, very high powered. You know, if you wanted to focus, they're very good at focusing. So if you wanted to make a very focused beam that was high power, you could use them for that. There's nothing inside them that will burn out or, or, or destroy itself. They're, they're very robust sorts of antennas. Um, one of the nice things about these uh, light slingers is they can be made in any shape. We've made circular ones, we've made long, thin ones, we've made ones that look like a smiley face. All of these are shaped, optimized for a particular application. They can also be made very thin. So, for example, cars are becoming more and more aware of their environment. You could build these light slinger antennas into the bodywork of your car and not notice that they were there and they could be, you know, radaring things around them. They could be communicating with other cars, self-driving cars and things like that. So um, they're they're just very versatile in shape and and form compared to a conventional antenna. And now that you have made them in a practical way, are you getting interest from industry, the carriers and possible other users, and how can this be commercialized? Well, that's a very, very interesting question. This has only really just come to the fore, as it were. We released a paper at the end of 2020, um, which was about focusing information to a particular point so that it's it's understandable easily at that point, but not elsewhere. And this generated a lot of interest in, in uh, sort of general science sort of magazines, research features magazine, for example. 
it also led us to receive an R&D 100 award. So now that the interest is growing, our commercialization division here, the Feynman Center, are still starting to talk to people like like Boeing and, and things like that. So um, th- what often happens with a new type of device like this, for example, the LCD displays that are everywhere nowadays, is you start with um, a kind of low volume, high margin sort of application, often a military application like radar or something. Um, some of the first LCD displays I ever saw, for instance, were in the Harrier vertical takeoff aircraft as a head up display. Then people see them at trade fairs and go, well, that looks like it would be a good thing to fit in your phone or whatever. And, you know, the, the military have demonstrated it. It works. And so it spreads into the um, in, into the wider market. And I mean, really, our long term aim is there are lots of places in the U.S. where school kids don't have access to high quality Internet. There are lots of places in the third world where people don't have access to this because these antennas are economical to produce. They can be made out of local materials in any sort of CNC and and, um, circuit board printing shop. We're hoping that they will spread the benefits of of wireless, good internet access across the US and across the the world, basically embracing everyone in in good communication. And do you have patents on this? Sometimes labs get patents. And what are the IP issues here, if any? This is a completely new field of research. Very little has been done about emission of radiation by polarization current. There's a kind of wide open plane of potential applications and things that you could do with these. So we patented the most obvious things like, how do you feed the electrical signals into the antenna? Anyone who ha- makes one of these things industrial will have to do that, you know, and either copy what we do. We've, we've got two different ways of doing it. One for the very flat panel antennas and one for making all sorts of different shapes of antennas. And so what that does is it enables you to feed the electrical signals in that tell the uh, polarization current to move around. Sounds exciting. It is very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see it in practice pretty soon, sounds like, and maybe even in our pocket or built into our hat one of these days. Well, one of the things is we've done calculations to show that these can be scaled from the sort of things that will fit in your cell phone to things that could replace VLF communication stations that cover thousands of acres and which are used for contacting our submarines and things. So, um, yeah. John Singleton is an electrical engineer and fellow at the Los Alamos National Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview plus a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took... Um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question one I don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, 
I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so while sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I 
had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, "Have you ever thought about a career in in federal service?" And she said, uh, "Isn't that for old people?" <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, "Okay, so you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger, but." I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.